morning, that it is not just expected, but it is demanded, it is required of them that they be forgiving people. And I don't know if you have uh, the same sort of digital circle of influence, the same group of conservative-ish people that are important in the worlds of social movements and politics swirling around on your digital feeds like they are on mine, but it sure seems like to me that forgiveness, uh, the demand for forgiveness is at an all-time high, and yet the supply seems to be at an all-time low. Many, many people who in the world claim to be either Christian or sort of Christian adjacent, that's what I mean when I say conservative, have basically given up on the idea that any ideological enemy, any political enemy, any social enemy of theirs is worth forgiving, and that instead we should do everything we can to fight and attack and kill and destroy these people before they take from us whatever the threat of the week is that we're afraid they're going to tear down our country or our families or whatever. I'm not arguing that we need to become passive. As you'll see from Jesus' teaching today, forgiveness is not passive at all. It's actually extremely active and very hard. It's much harder than just staying angry. But I think that the reason that forgiveness needs to be approached as a discipline is because it's not just unnatural to who we are as people. That's true. But so is brushing your teeth and exercising and eating a salad. And you found a way to do those things once in a while, I hope, to help your body be healthy. We need to approach forgiveness in the same way, as a discipline, as something that we're willing to engage in so that when the time comes that we need to be forgiving, we are equipped, we are experienced, we are familiar with what it costs to be able to truly forgive another person. About a month ago, we worked through a spiritual practice on simplicity. Prior to that, if you were not around, just so you know where we've been, we've talked about silence and solitude, kind of our foundational starting uh, project in, in practices. We've talked about prayer. Uh, like I said, we've talked about simplicity. We've kind of generally overviewed a couple of different times why spiritual disciplines are important. What I want to do for you today, right out of the gate, is define for you what a spiritual discipline is, and I'll do this quickly, because if you were here a month or two ago, you've seen this recently. But if you don't know, when we talk about a spiritual discipline, when we talk about a spiritual practice, what we are talking about is a cooperative activity. So that's something you're doing, not alone, but together with someone else. In this case, the person you're doing it with is the three persons of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's a cooperative activity between you and God, which prepares you, that's why it's a discipline, it prepares you for obedience that comes from love for God. So the two questions that I want us to try to answer today, because I'm not sure you're convinced, I wouldn't be if I was sitting where you are, is how to do that. How? How do I forgive another person? How can I say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, when my conscience betrays me, when I feel guilty, when I lay in bed at night and say, did I really forgive that person? Did I really forgive them? How do I know? How can I be sure that in God's eyes I've accomplished forgiveness? We'll talk about that. I think Jesus makes it plain. But maybe more importantly and even harder is to answer the question, well, why should I? Why would a life that forgives people who've wronged me, why would a life that seeks reconciliation with people that have betrayed me, how could that be good? Why would that be good? Is that just like a cool moral thing to try to do because Jesus says so? No, I think there's actual real uh, ramifications, side effects, results that will be born into your life, fruit, to use the language of the Bible, if you can become a person who is actively forgiving. That's where we're going to go today. We're going to try to answer those two questions. Um, next week, we're going to talk specifically about the role that God plays in human forgiveness. Uh, all of human forgiveness, if it's going to be successful, has to start and end with the forgiveness that God shows to humanity. So next week is going to be sort of a theological argument and expose from all of Scripture on how and why forgiveness is necessary, where it comes from, and how that teaches us how we are to live and model forgiveness in our own lives. In two weeks, which is November the 12th, I'm going to try my best to speak to you about the intersection between forgiveness and abuse, which is the hardest conversation to have when it comes to forgiveness. It's not easy to forgive anybody ever, because it's not natural to us, and we have a lot of pride, even if we're Christians, and we get very upset when people do small, petty things that get under our skin. But that's a different category from someone willingly and frequently and repeatedly exerting dominance and power over you because you are weaker than them, taking advantage of you, turning their preferences into demands in your life, which is the beginning of the mindset of abuse. So I want you to know for two reasons. One, I'm going to do my best to not get deep into that today because you didn't know that if I had done that, you wouldn't have known we were going to talk about it. And some of us, I think, maybe deserve a warning. That's the second reason is that those of you who have had to endure abuse and live through abuse, you deserve an opportunity to make your mind up on whether you'd like to sit through 40 to 50 minutes of someone talking about that on a Sunday morning. So I just want you to know, on the 12th, 
We're going to attack that question head on. I think the Bible has answers. The Bible is actually full of people who abuse one another, and God is present in the midst of that and offers resolution and a way forward to those people. So we're going to hone in on that in two weeks. That will benefit us, but I also want you to have a heads up if that's not something that you want to be present for. My commitment to you is I won't be crass. I'm not going to be vulgar. I won't be explicit. I'm not going to bombard you with all of these emotionally charged, heart-wrenching examples. I want us to just talk very plainly with each other about the facts. And the facts are that we live in a world where many, many people are damaged and hurt, and out of that damage and out of that hurt, they propagate abuse against each other. And I believe the Bible has answers for people who have found themselves victimized that are better answers and more helpful answers and more powerful answers than just ignore that person and hope that eventually time heals the wound, which it never does. Time heals no wounds. If you've been convinced to, to believe that lie, you can jettison that as well. What heals wounds is proactivity. It's you taking ownership. It's you taking responsibility. It's you finding a way to take back the thing, the, the agency, the decision-making, the emotional control, the stability that another person has robbed you of. So I don't want to go any further down that road, but just know that that's where we're headed in two weeks, and this is your heads up. This is your PSA on whether you want to be here for that or not. I think it'll be helpful to you. I'm going to be very sensitive, but it's your choice to make. And then finally, on November the 19th, we will wrap up our study of forgiveness as a practice by trying to move our mindset from thinking of forgiveness as the caboose on conflict and instead seeing it as a doorway, a leading, a first step into a different kind of life. Because if all forgiveness is, is a necessary evil, then all Jesus will ever be is like an emergency room doctor who, yeah, we're thankful to see, but we really would have preferred to never be in the emergency room in the first place. We would prefer to just not interact with him at all if we don't have to, and so what that leads to is a kind of Christian lifestyle of defensiveness. We backpedal because we don't want to get hurt bad enough where we have to forgive. That's not what forgiveness is. Biblical forgiveness becomes sort of the leading, bleeding edge of Christianity where it empowers us and enables us to go into conversations, situations, relationships where we know people are going to take things from us and not appreciate us and mistreat us. But we do that in the name of the kingdom of God. So again, I'm not going to preach that whole sermon today, but that's how we will land the plane. So the question I think that this leaves us with is what do we do? If we want to become people who can forgive, if we want to become people who feel compelled, who have some sense of conviction around forgiveness, then I think we have to approach forgiveness with the same mindset that we do any kind of discipline. We have to engage in forgiveness because we know it's good for us, even when it doesn't feel good. Even when it maybe feels like weakness, when I, like I told you earlier, when it feels like passivity to some degree. We want to resist our desire to just kind of give up and collapse and instead take the harder, stronger, higher road of forgiveness that allows us to be forgiving when we don't feel like it, when we have not received an apology, and when the person who has wronged us is still out there on the loose. The bottom line is this, and this is what we're going to see from scriptures. If, if forgiveness is meant to be a spiritual discipline that leads to obedience, that comes from love, then if we refuse to forgive, if we don't intend to engage in forgiveness, if instead we give ourselves over to bitterness or revenge or we are just reactive all the time because we have unaddressed, unhealed wounds in our life, then we're not actually going to obey God when the time comes. We won't suddenly, just because the pressure's on and everybody's watching us and the stakes are very high, we won't just suddenly become able to do a thing that we've never practiced. Think about if you got called up into an NBA basketball game right now. The fact that you put on a Dallas Mavericks or a Seattle Supersonics jersey doesn't make you able to take shots and make shots against NBA players. In fact, the opposite would be true. If you've never played basketball, it's going to be very embarrassing and traumatic, and you might walk away from that experience saying, I hate basketball, it's horrible, it's terrible, I tried it one time, it wasn't for me. But did you really try basketball? Did you really practice basketball? Did you really get to know the game and the rules? Did you apply yourself to it? Did you eat and sleep and exercise like a person who wants to play high-level basketball? No, you just waited until you were in the crosshairs of an NBA player and they dunked the ball on you so hard that they knocked you off onto your rear end and everybody saw it and that's, that's all basketball was for you. For many of us, spiritual practices like prayer, fasting, forgiveness in this case, simplicity, we have the same mindset. We're just waiting. We're kind of going, oh, someday something will happen where this will be necessary, and then I'll just do it. I'll just know how to do it, even though I've never practiced it, never thought about it, and have no real intention of putting it into my daily life. We have to approach forgiveness. We have to practice forgiveness with the intention that eventually, my friends, if you don't know this, this is a little bit of prophecy in your life, somebody's going to hurt you bad, really, really bad. And it's probably going to be somebody who's supposed to take care of you, who's supposed to be safe, who's supposed to support you, who's supposed to help you pursue happiness and safety and joy. 
But instead of those things, you're going to find out all of a sudden that they've been stabbing you in the back for a long time and you didn't know it. And there's been lies and there's been deceit. You don't want to wait until that moment to decide whether or not you're going to try to be forgiving. What you'll find out if you wait that long is that you don't have the capacity to do it. And the way that you react and the wounds that you create in other people as a result of processing that pain are far worse and far further reaching than if you would begin to practice a mindset of forgiveness now. I believe that God can shape and change you through that so that when the time comes, you can go another way. You don't have to settle for revenge. You don't have to collapse into bitterness. You can actually forgive. So Jesus is going to answer these two questions for us today in Matthew chapter 18. If you have a copy of God's word, it would be great if you would go there on your own. I think most of you trust me. I hope so. But it's still really good for you to see the Bible with your own two eyes. It's good for your memory. It's good for your spirit. The word of God is alive. It works in us. So it's worth your time to head that way. We'll begin in verse 21 of Matthew 18. That's just a couple of verses before kind of a bold heading in which Jesus tells a story. But I want to start with the question that one of his disciples asks Jesus that then will provide Jesus, kind of set him up so he can hit a home run with his answer. Jesus is answering Why do I forgive? Why should I? And how can I? In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, Jesus is interacting with Peter. Here's what happens. Now, Peter, one of the disciples, came to Jesus, as he often does. And he said to Jesus, Master, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? Right off the bat, this should give you a hint. Okay, we'll take a little pause here, and maybe I can pull you into the story a little bit. I don't know if you remember what it was like when you were in your undergraduate degree or in high school, or maybe you did some master's work, or maybe you have a doctorate, but when I was in seminary, taking seminary classes, there were men who went to seminary and came and sat in classes that they had paid thousands of dollars for that would regularly raise their hand and ask a question of the professor that that person asking the question already thought they knew the answer to. And they would do exactly what Peter did. They would ask a question. They would say, uh, excuse me, Dr. Wellum, uh, wouldn't you say, isn't it true that the hypostatic union means that though Jesus was fully God and fully man, that he surrendered certain parts of himself, uh, and so therefore maybe there are times and places where he didn't always know the full future? They would ask a question like that, which is not really a question. It's like them kind of going, hey, Dr. Wellum, I'm going to steal a little bit of your platform here in class, and I'm going to try to impress all these other nerds and knuckleheads with my Bible knowledge and make them think that I'm really cool. I think that's kind of what Peter's doing here. It would have been better for Peter, as we're about to read, a little bit less embarrassing if he would have just asked the question and let it land. But instead, Peter says, hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven, right? Right, Jesus? Seven? Is it seven? And all the other disciples are kind of like, Peter, shut up. He's, is it seven, Jesus? Right? You and me, Jesus? It's, okay, Jesus says no. That's his answer. He says, not seven times, Peter. Shh, Peter. No, no, no. Shh, just calm down. I tell you, he says, 77 times, which is embarrassing for Peter. It's not, he doesn't feel good. He didn't have the right answer. Jesus goes on to say, here's the reason why. He's going to tell us a story beginning in verse 23. This is why. So understand, this is the context. This is why Jesus is saying, this story is why you must forgive 77 times. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And your Bible may say servants or it may say bond servants, but the Greek word is actually slave. The reason your Bible would translate it differently is because Greco-Roman slavery is wildly different from what we call chattel slavery or uh, the transatlantic slave trade, which was race-based, ethnic, demographic slaves where people were captured, bred into captivity, treated like animals. That is not what the Greek word means. That was not a concept in this world at this time. What this is talking about is people who have no money and go to wealthy, powerful people like the king in the story, and they say, I have no money, I cannot feed my family, will you please feed my family, and I will sell myself to you. In exchange for having the sustenance that I need to live, and my family having a future, I will give every waking hour of my life to you. I will only work on your projects, I will only be found in your fields, I will only repair your house, I will only care for your animals, I will only take care of your family. And so that's what's going on here. So this king has developed, as many kings do, sort of a large group of people who owe him something. And that debt in those people's lives has resulted in them selling themselves to the king to slowly but surely work that debt off. These people are not being beaten within an inch of their life. They're not being bred like cattle to be sold naked in marketplaces in the 13 colonies. That's not what's going on. I'm going to read it as it's written in Greek because that's what it says, but I want you to know that what we're dealing with is not cruelty slavery. We're dealing with people who have put themselves in a massive amount of debt, maybe because of bad decisions, maybe because of poor health, but this king has a lot of these people. And for some reason, he decides at this point in the story that it's time to settle those debts. 
it's time to call all those slaves back in and require them to repay whatever it is that they owe, or if not, we'll see what happens. So, verse 24, as this king began settling his accounts, a man who owed the king 10,000 talents, we're going to talk about how much that is in today's money in just a minute, that man was brought to the king. Because the man was not able to repay that amount of money, the king ordered that he be sold again. So the king is now saying, okay, you can't pay me what you owe me, so instead of you paying me, I'll sell you to some other powerful person, and they'll give me at least a portion of the money that you owe me so that I can make a little bit back from you. If you've ever been in medical debt before and you've dodged collections that are calling you constantly, it's the same concept. This, this, in a way, this king is going to sell the debt to another person, make a little bit of his money back, and make this slave somebody else's problem. Okay, so the king orders that this is going to happen to the man. It's also going to happen to his wife, and it's going to happen to his children, and they're going to lose everything that, that they possess. Their, their meager possessions, their clothing, maybe the hut they live in, their cattle if they've started to collect some animals along the way, all of it's going to be liquidated. They are going to essentially go back to ground zero. All the work they've done since they initially sold themselves into slavery, it's going to be gone until repayment can be made, the king says. So the slave responds. He throws himself to the ground in front of the king, and he begs, saying, be patient with me, and I will repay you everything. I just need a little more time. You guys ever seen the Godfather movies? This happens like every 10 minutes in those movies. Somebody comes to see the Corleone crime family, and they beg and beg and beg, can I have another couple of days? Can I have another few weeks? This is the nature of how loan sharks work. We don't know that the king in this story is necessarily wrong in the way that he set the system up, but this slave is basically saying, I just need a little bit more time. What you're going to find out in a minute when I tell you how much 10,000 talents is, is he doesn't need a little bit more time. He needs like several hundred lifetimes to pay back the amount that he's borrowed against this king. But what's the king's response? That's the key. The king has compassion on the slave, the person who is in debt to him. And instead of selling him, he releases the slave. And instead of demanding that the full amount be repaid, he forgives the slave. Now, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that this slave goes away from this encounter and feels that he has a new lease on life. He can, he's going to change his bad, maybe it's a gambling habit, maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's he has a secret second family over in Palestine somewhere, and he's sending them money instead of taking care of his family. But you would imagine a fresh start equals him saying, whatever it is I've been doing that's put me in so much debt, I'm done with it. I'm, I'm through. Not the case at all. Let's see what he does. After he went out, that same slave found one of his fellow slaves who owed him about 100 silver coins, which is not a lot of money. That's a few hundred dollars in modern money. So he grabbed him. That means that the slave who was just forgiven grabbed the man who owed him 100 silver coins by the throat and began to choke him, saying to the second slave, pay me what you owe me. Now look at the way that Jesus mirrors in verse 29 the exact same language that we saw in verse 26. Then his fellow slave threw himself down and begged him, it's word for word the same quote, be patient with me, and I will repay you. Now in the first situation, the slave who cries out to the king says, be patient, and I will repay you everything. And the king has compassion on him. Mercy, forgives the debt, releases him from his bondedness, his slave, his slave status. In this instance, this other slave is now begging the first slave who was forgiven, be patient with me, and I will repay you. But the slave who was forgiven, excuse me, refused. Instead, he went out and he threw the man into prison until the man had repaid the debt. And when all the other slaves who are in town, because their debts have been called in to be settled by the king, when they saw what had happened, they were very upset, and they went and told their king everything that had taken place. And then the king called the first slave and said to him, evil slave. Jesus is saying that the actions that the first slave took against his friend, his peer, were evil. Not just mean, which is subjective, not just unwise, which is a little bit subjective, but objectively evil. Evil slave, the king says. I forgave you all of that debt because you begged me. In other words, you cried for mercy, and mercy is what you received. Should you not have shown mercy to your fellow slave, just as I showed it to you? And in anger... The king turned the first slave, the man who's already been forgiven now, gets turned over to the prison guards to torture him until he pays back what he owes. Now, remember, Jesus is speaking 
to his disciples, to Peter and the gang, Peter has said, how many times, Jesus, seven? And Jesus has said, no, 77, and here's why. Now Jesus turns to his disciples away from this story he's been telling, looks them in the eyes, and says in verse 35, so also your heavenly Father will do to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. So I don't know if you remember But 12 chapters earlier in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus preaches one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very clear. He's vividly clear. It's scary how clear he is. He says repeatedly, you have heard it said, based on the Old Testament law, not to take a specific evil action. He gives murder as an example. He gives adultery as an example. But then Jesus says to these people that know the Old Testament law, he says, but I say to you, it's not just what you do, it's what you want to do. It's not just what your hands do, it's what your heart does. It's not just where your feet take you, it's what your mind imagines. These are the things you are accountable for, is your inner life, your inner person. Now Jesus is echoing that same kind of language here in Matthew 18 by saying, if you, my friends, my disciples, my followers, the apostles, the future of the church, if you people refuse to forgive in your heart the people who have wronged you, It is as good as if you had walked out of the throne room of a king who had forgiven you an impossible debt and wrapped your hands around the neck of that person and begun choking them to the point of death, demanding that they repay you. It's the same thing, Jesus says. Now, why is he being so serious? Peter has just offered seven apologies. Seven apologies, Jesus. Is seven not enough? Shouldn't we apologize seven times and then the eighth time when somebody has wronged us? I mean, at some point we have to learn our lesson, don't we? Don't we have to figure out if somebody tells you who they are, eventually you've got to believe them. And I should probably just remain bitter and angry and vengeful at that point. And Jesus is saying, if you reach a point where you will not forgive someone and you have made your mind up, your hands are around their throat. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to wrap your hands around your throat, you should expect the king, who is your heavenly father, to have a bone to pick with you. To have something to say about that. If you're going to claim Christ, think of John's first letter. First John, John says, if we claim to know God, yet we say ourselves that we're not guilty. If we claim to know God, yet we don't put his love into practice. If we claim to know God, we prove that his word does not abide in us if we don't live according to that word. Jesus is not trying to scare you. I think he's trying to help you. He's trying to warn Peter. Peter, you're shooting really low, buddy. Seven times is not enough. It's going to be 77 times. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, the way Jesus answers Peter's initial question, which i got to scroll here, is way back in verse 22. When he says, I tell you 77 times, another equally valid way to translate that is 70 times 7 times which is 490 times. I don't know for sure, but very likely the only person who's ever going to be close enough to you in your life to need you to forgive them 490 times is the person that you're married to, very, very probably. And if you have been counting and you have made it to 491 times that you've had to forgive them, your marriage probably needs counsel. You might need to go see somebody together and figure out what's going on and uh, and, and, and find some new solutions for yourselves, okay? But Jesus' point is, is that he's making emphasis. He's trying to be extreme. I believe that the number isn't the point. I believe that the point is the concept, that he's trying to say to Peter, the number of times that you're going to forgive somebody is so large and so dramatic that it's a waste of your time to keep tally. It's a waste of your time to open your phone up and, and make a note and go, today I had to forgive my wife four more times. Or more likely in my case, my wife had to forgive me ten more times because the scales tend to tip that way in our household, okay? So he, he's saying that's not the way to think about it. Now why does that matter? Because in Jesus' context, everybody around him is Jewish. And those Jewish people have a gathering of writings that's called the Talmud. The Talmud is like sermon commentaries that you can look up online. Like if you've ever had somebody on Facebook repost a Charles Spurgeon quote, they probably found that by digging through old manuscripts of his sermons. A collection of his sermons is not scripture, but it's still helpful. And the Jews have that, and it's called the Talmud. And the Talmud is commentaries. In the Talmud, it says that the number of times that you forgive somebody before you turn your back on them permanently is three. So in light of that, 
Peter does okay, doesn't he? Peter's like, okay, we're going to double that and add one, and that's the number that I'll throw at Jesus, because I think he spent enough time with Jesus, being embarrassed by Jesus for the first 17 chapters of the book of Matthew, that he's realized that he's going to have to be extreme. And I, that's why I think I feel comfortable saying to you that this moment for Peter is sort of a jockeying for position and clout among the disciples moment, because he's trying to say, Jesus, how many times should we, should we uh, apologize, or should we accept someone else's apology? Should we forgive them? And I think he's thinking all these other boneheaded disciples are going to say three, because that's what the Talmud says. And he says, is it seven, Jesus? And he's kind of like, seven? Is it seven? I know, it's unbelievable, right? But that's how good of a Christian I am, so, you know, it's, that's how it's good. And then Jesus comes back at him and says, no, it's not seven, Peter. It's also not three. It's 77. Or another way, like I told you to translate that, is maybe 490. For the disciples who are standing around Jesus, even though they've been with him for over a year at this point in his ministry, to, to forgive another person in their context more than three times is foolishness. It's silly. It's the kind of thing that if they did it, their mother-in-law would send them a letter in the mail and say, I'm really concerned with how you're leading your, our family. I'm really nervous about the decisions that you're making. It seems like you're opening yourself up to be taken advantage of. This is unwise. It's uncareful. It's foolishness. Peter, like the other disciples, though he didn't have an opportunity to watch The Office on TV, kind of falls into the Michael Scott school of forgiveness. Maybe you've heard this quote before. Michael Scott says, you know what they say, fool me once, strike one, but fool me twice, strike three. That's Peter's perspective. That's what Peter thinks. R.T. France is a great commentator from the New Testament. Here's what he says about this passage. He says, there is no limit. In Jesus' eyes, in Jesus' eyes, from his perspective, according to what he says, there is no limit, no place for keeping a tally of forgiveness that's already been used up. Peter asked the wrong question. If one is still counting, one is not forgiving. One of our two questions today is why should you forgive? Why? What motivates you to do that? What example do you have? Why is it even God's business? Well, here's my answer to that question, and know that we're going to keep tapping into this for the next three weeks, so if it's not immediately clear what I mean, we're going to get there, but I want to give you a working definition of why. The reason why we should forgive is because according to Jesus, unlimited forgiveness is the primary export of the kingdom of God. It's the thing the kingdom of God produces, packages, and ships to all the other kingdoms on the earth, is unlimited forgiveness. Jesus is intentionally being hyperbolic. He's giving a number so big that it would be ridiculous to keep track of. He's trying to say to his disciples, you're thinking in the wrong terms. You're thinking that knowing God makes you a little bit more forgiving. I'm saying to you that knowing God eventually makes you forgiveness incarnate. It does not just change what you are willing to do. It changes who you are. You become a person, and this is hard for you and I to imagine, but you become a person who has such a deep well of forgiveness within them because they are connected to the Spirit of God that they don't have to keep score anymore. They don't have to worry about how much it's going to cost. Can I afford to forgive? Can I afford to be wronged again? Jesus' way is that you would be filled to the brim with everything that you need to the point that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter what someone else takes from you, God can give it back and give you more. Imagine the way that your life would look if you believed that. What if you weren't afraid of anything? We talk like that's a great objective, right? We hype ourselves up before we walk into our boss's meeting to ask for a raise, and we sometimes use Bible verses and Christian songs to do that. But really, deep down in our hearts, when we face stuff that feels like a threat to us, we're still pretty fear-driven people. Jesus imagines a world, a kingdom in which you have such access to so many boundless and unlimited resources, even when it comes to yourself. Your personal identity becomes so vast and so deep and so eternal that people can cut and slice and scratch and break as much as they want, but they can't get all the way to the you inside because you belong to Christ. And you're found in him. And the resources that he has to offer are limitless, unlimited. My friends, I know this is challenging. My intention is not to create guilt in you. I hope you're not sitting right there thinking of a person that you're mad at who has hurt you and starting to talk yourself into making a hasty apology this afternoon so that you can feel better about yourself. That's not the goal. The goal is to put all of that on pause and to look inside yourself. And to ask yourself a question about you. Not about them. Not about the people who've hurt you. We're going to get there. That's where we're going in two weeks. But for today, we need to look in the spiritual mirror ourselves. 
and not think about our spouse and whether they're forgiving enough and not think about our kids and whether they're forgiving enough or our coworkers, but our own self. Am I a person who has bought into the idea that there is such a thing as unlimited forgiveness? Do I really believe that I can put the whole weight of my life on God and on the cross of Christ and that one of the things I gain from that is the ability to give and give and give and never run out? Or, as is often the experience that we have, to be taken from and taken from and taken from and never run out. In response to the unbelievable expectation of unlimited forgiveness, Jesus doesn't even give Peter another chance to respond. (laughs) Peter has put one foot in his mouth, that is enough feet in his mouth. Jesus answers his question and goes right into the story. He says, this is why unlimited forgiveness is so important for you. Because Jesus knows, better than we even do, that people are going to hurt us. Someone in your life who matters a lot to you today will eventually become a candidate for you to cut out and move on from. They will hurt you that bad. Very probably, like I said to you earlier, the person who's closest to you stands the highest probability of hurting you the most. You're going to have to find a way to navigate those kinds of relationships. Jesus understands a day will come where you will be walking around and you will encounter a person who owes you something. And you will immediately feel so overcome with anger or volatility or reactivity that you may be tempted to throw your hands around their throat, even if it's just in a relational sense, even if it's just in a social sense. Even if it's in sort of just a subtle side eye, you get the message that I'm sending to you and I'm going to cut you because you cut me way, you're going to be tempted to do that. And if you're not ready for that moment, you don't really stand a chance at doing anything but that. You're going to be vindictive because you're a human being. Jesus has a different way forward in mind. So in returning our attention to the story that he told, I want to give you four steps to forgiveness. And I want you to know before you look at any of these, they're too hard for you to take. They are. I'm going to show you a path that's impossible for you to walk alone. And unless you are a person who has spent much time connected to the Spirit of God in prayer, in meditation, in fasting, in silence and solitude, in preparing your heart to be taken from, you're not going to be able to just sprint through these four steps and enter into freedom. This is going to feel like discipline for you. So if it seems like we're shooting high, we are. And I'm glad you're here, and I hope that you'll feel challenged and in some sense inspired by what God could do in you if you're willing to go the long, slow route of being shaped into the image of Christ. The first of the four steps that Jesus gives us in his story is that we need to expose the truth. Now, for some of us who are justice-oriented, this one's fun. It's exciting. We want everybody to know when something wrong has happened. We celebrate and stand behind and support whistleblowers and people who've come out first in movements that have exposed abuse. Now, that's not wrong. But many of us, though we like the idea of someone else doing that, what we've begun to practice in our own lives is looking the other way when someone hurts us. Trying as best we can to ignore it. Trying to not make the fight. We don't want the conflict. It gives us anxiety. It makes our stomach hurt to have to confront anybody about anything. In this particular story, specifically in verse 24, the king decides to settle the accounts. He is willing to speak to the people who have a debt against him about their debt. To say to them, You are in debt to me. You have done something. You've made some kind of decision that has caused me to have less than I used to have of myself or my money or whatever. And now I'm demanding that you acknowledge that. You need to admit, and if you won't, I'm going to tell you that I know that the thing you did was wrong and it never should have happened. Let me throw back to you for just a minute to the story where Jesus says that the man, this first slave who owed the king money, owed 10,000 talents. A talent is roughly the annual salary of the average working class man in Jesus' day and age. So let's fast forward that to 2023, and I think we could argue, at least according to the federal government, that the median average wage right now for full-time work is around $40,000. Now, whether that's fair or not is up to you to decide, but that's the number that they use. So let's use that number. If one talent is one year's wages, then in our dollars, this slave owed this king about $400 billion, which is supposed to feel the way that it feels when I say that to you. You're supposed to go, oh gosh, this isn't just like he's like $75,000 in debt and could work it off over a lifetime. Now, if you're like me, I hear that and I go, what did this guy do that costs $400 billion? What habit does he have that I've never heard of, especially in ancient Israel? The man could spend that much money? But we don't know. We don't know what position he was in. What we do know is he's not just put the king in bad shape. This affects a lot of other people. This is a big deal. You can't owe somebody $400 billion without that affecting the gross domestic profit of at least a handful of countries in the modern world. That's a lot of money. And so this is an immense debt that's been created, and this king is willing to call that debt out, to say what it is. Now, he's not uh, overly aggressive. 
He doesn't attack the character of the man. He doesn't go out of his way to hurt the slave. He simply says, you owe me, and it's time to pay up. You contribute to that, and I will meet you there, and we will talk about how we want to manage this together. Now, the reason I think 400 billion is a really helpful number, the reason I think Jesus picked 10,000 talents as his number in his day and age is because he knows he's speaking to a group of people whose primary issues with each other are not going to be financial at all. They're going to be interpersonal. And relational conflict, emotional conflict, feels as big as $400 billion. It hurts that bad. If somebody just owes you 100 bucks, you guys can sit down and negotiate a way for them to pay that money back to you, right? If one of your kids throws a baseball through the front window of your house, they're not probably, unless that was like a stained glass window passed down through your family, they're probably not creating an emotional wound there for you. They just owe you however much it costs to pay for the window. And so they're going to mow the lawn and do the dishes until they work that amount off, and then it's done. It doesn't really affect your relationship that much. But that's not most of the conflict that we have with people. Most of the conflict we have with people is we begin to trust them. We think we know who they are. We give them an opportunity to come into our life and be close to us, and then they hurt us. And then they surprise us. And then they betray us. And then we confront them, and we say, I didn't like that. That hurt my feelings. You shouldn't have done that. And they say either, I didn't do that, which is gaslighting, or they say, I'm glad that I did that, which is cruel. This is most of what we have to deal with. So I think actually, though $400 billion is an impossibly large amount of money to pay back to someone, it's a pretty good example of what it feels like to have someone deeply wrong you. When you've been deeply wronged, it feels that big. It feels like I couldn't write a number down on a piece of paper that would make me feel better about this. I think back, I don't know if you guys ever followed this, but back when the World Trade Centers were hit by suicide bombers so many years ago, there was a law firm whose responsibility it was was to figure out how much the insurance company owed each of the surviving families of the people who died. There's a movie about it I can't remember the name of, but it's good. I liked it. I watched it. It had a good actor. I'm sorry I don't have more details for you, but you have a phone. You can Google that and figure it out. But one of the most heart-wrenching parts of the story is when this man, this insurance adjuster, has to decide what's the number going to be on a life. What's the financial amount that you're owed when your child is gone and isn't coming back? What's the financial amount that you're owed when your father, who was supposed to walk you down the aisle and help you welcome your first child, doesn't exist anymore? They were vaporized by boiling hot jet fuel. What do you do with that? This is what it feels like to be wronged. In a way, it's trying to put a number to something that has no numerical value because it's too valuable. And so in that sense, I think Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. And he says that the starting point for you is to not ignore the problem. It's to not seek uneasy peace or dishonest peace by turning your back on how someone has wounded you. It's to say out loud to God, to yourself, and to that person if you have the opportunity, this should never have happened. It's evil. That's what the king says. Evil. It goes against God's will. It isn't right. It shouldn't have happened. And I'm not going to just stand by and let it go unaddressed. Once we do that, now the real hard stuff begins. Now, if you're an introvert and you hate conflict, it's already hard at step one. But at least half of us are kind of going, yeah, say out loud what's wrong. Well, now here's what you get to do. After you've exposed the truth, Jesus instructs us, according to the king's actions in verse 27, to embrace the offender's vulnerability. Now, this is hard. This is where, if we're not careful, we enter into Stockholm Syndrome territory, Okay. I have sat in my office counseling people before who are in abusive marriages, and it is always surprising to me when the person who has been abused sticks up for the person who abused them and says, well, you don't know how stressful his job is, or you don't know how bad his dad treated him, or you don't know this alcohol or substance issue that he has that from that person's perspective excuses the whole thing. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not looking for a way out of the conflict. We're not looking for a way to excuse what's been done wrong. What we're trying to do is remind ourselves that conflict is always between two human beings. So, yes, we want to expose the truth, but we don't allow exposing the truth to bleed all the way over to this extreme negative emotional place where we become vindictive. That's the way of the world. The world would argue to you that the only way to find satisfaction when you're suffering is to take out your pain and anger on the person who hurt you. That's the only, that's karma in play. People talk a lot about karma, even Christians do, and they shouldn't because it's not real. But they talk about karma, right? Balancing the scales, putting a little bit of negativity in this side to even out how badly the other person hurt you. That's not our goal. If we stay angry and we become bitter, the person who hurt us is staying in control of us. They don't care. They've probably moved on to go hurt other people. They probably don't have a lot of remorse if they're a serial abuser or a serial wrongdoer. What we do 
when we stay angry, when we stay bitter, is we stay locked in a cage that only forgiving that person will ever let us out of. And even though that person may physically have moved on, they continue to control our emotional state by us not forgiving them and staying angry. And therefore, they continue to control some of our decision-making. Because when you're that angry, you make a different set of decisions than you would make if you were at peace. So my friends, understanding that the other person is a human being is a step toward you lowering the temperature in the conversation. It doesn't mean we don't call a spade a spade. But it means that we begin to take steps toward not reacting, not meeting that person on their ground, on their terms, and becoming combative and violent and vindictive in the way that they would want us to, which then, to them, would become an excuse to further wrongdoing. They would say, I knew it, aha, you always blow up, you always lose control. And when we do that, then they feel that we've qualified their wrongdoing, and on and on the cycle goes. What we want to do is find a way to see the other person as a person who has their own vulnerabilities, their own weaknesses, their own issues and pains and griefs. You and I only have so much to give. This is why this forgiveness is a uniquely Christian principle. It is only by being totally connected to the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus himself, that we can access a well of understanding and a well of compassion and a well of empathy that can drive us toward what is essentially real justice. One of the great lies that modern people believe is that justice looks like taking out our pain and anger on the person who hurt us. That's not justice. That's revenge. That's subjective. That's emotional. It's not fair. It's not just at all. In order for something to be just, it must be true, it must be accurate, and it must land in the same place every time. If you actually want justice, forgiveness is your ally in that work. Being able to eliminate and remove and work through and heal the personal wound sets you up to be successful when it comes to meeting out the, the fairest and most just discipline that a person has earned for themselves. Finding a way to see the other person as human is a huge part of that process. Number three, we want to aim for reconciliation. Now, we can't create it. We can't force it. You'll see in the story that the king aims for reconciliation. The king who was the one wronged in the story and the one who is more than justified to kick this slave out of his kingdom forever instead restores the relationship. The slave is released from being known for the wrong he had done and is instead restored as a citizen, released from the debt, forgiven the debt. In other words, the relationship goes back to how it started for the king and the slave initially. And I, I get that this is where this starts to cut a little bit. If you have been abused by a person... You may say, preacher, are you saying to me that I need to welcome that person back into my life with open arms? No, I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that there is some form of resolution between you and that person that is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit alone. When that happens and how it happens and who is party to that conversation is unique to your circumstances. What Jesus is concerned with is your heart. Out of your heart, your actions will flow. Out of your heart, the fruit of your life will be born. If in your heart you can reach a point where you can comprehend or imagine reconciliation, that's as far as you are expected to go. In this story, we get a great example of a serial abuser. A slave who has put himself in a massive debt to the king is forgiven by the king. The king does his job. He says, I can forgive. I can show compassion. We can go back to, to ground zero, to the starting point here together. But what does the slave do right away? He goes out and breaks the relationship all over again. That is his wrong. Now there is a new wrong to expose. Now there is a new set of circumstances to consider. This will often happen to you and I. It is not our responsibility to attempt to control a person who has been hurting us all of our life. It is our responsibility as Christians to eventually find ourselves in a place where we can see the other person as human and aim for reconciliation in as much as we can control it. That means settling the debt in our own hearts. That means finding a way to jettison and vent the anger and the grief and the fury and the confusion and the disassociation, all the other things that happen when someone's been hurting you for a long period of time. We do that work in us so that we get back to a place of wholeness such that if the other person repented, confessed, turned around, was changed by the Spirit of God, there would be a way to have a relationship. But aiming for reconciliation is not forcing a person who has hurt you to be in your life so that you don't have to feel bad about creating some healthy distance. That's not what I'm saying to you. And again, I'm not going to steal my own thunder, but we're going to go here on the 12th. We're going to see that perpetrators often respond poorly to repentance 
or to forgiveness, excuse me. They don't respond with repentance. They instead take advantage of forgiveness. They instead further perpetuate their wrongdoing against other new people. The Bible has a lot to say about that, but in this particular instance, the king is our example, and he shows us that you can aim for reconciliation. Finally, and probably hardest of all, you absorb the loss. Now, this will happen in your life whether you want it to or not. You can fight it, and it can take a very long time, or you can embrace that it's true and grieve your way through it because it's deeply painful. Being a Christian doesn't mean life doesn't hurt anymore. Being a Christian means when life hurts, it matters. There's purpose. There's meaning. Every life is miserable. Every life is painful. That's what it means to live in this broken world that we live in. Thanks, original man and woman, for breaking it all, right? And we inherited that, and now we have to deal with it. You can suffer without meaning, or you can suffer with meaning. That's the choice you get to make. I know this isn't a super encouraging sermon, but I'm just telling you, that's what you get to decide. Bad things are going to happen. Days are going to go poorly. People are going to betray you. You can decide that that's random and meaningless, and you can run from it and medicate it and try to protect yourself from it ever happening, and you'll fail every time, and eventually you'll hate yourself because you'll say, if I was stronger, if I was better, if I was more equipped, then I wouldn't have let this person do this to me, and it's BS. It's not true. The way of Jesus says all of that suffering, all of those trials, the persecution, the attacks, people calling you weak and passive because you choose the way of love and forgiveness, those things can be full to the brim with meaning and can actually transform you into the image of the living Christ, the Christ who finished his life in prayer in a garden where he was ambushed and betrayed and killed for having done nothing wrong. That's our example. Don't be surprised when people come after you. They should come after you for your faith. They'll occasionally come after you for other reasons. But eventually, you're going to have to make the decision. If you've exposed the truth, embrace that the other person is a human, aim for reconciliation with that human being as much as it's up to you, they're going to, they're going to ultimately not fulfill their end of the bargain. That's the point that I'm trying to make to you. In this particular instance between the slave and the king, the slave is sorry, he's begging for his life. Even if his heart had changed, that does not change his bank account at all. It does not make him immediately able to repay the debt. All he can do is meet the king in a place of compassion and mercy and accept the mercy that's being extended, but he can't really pay back the damage that he's done. And the person who has wronged you does not have the capacity to repay the debt that they've created in your life. They can't do it. They can help you, admitting it, confessing that they did it, repenting for doing it, changing it. All of that is very healing, but it does not ultimately fill the hole that they created. The only person who can ever come close to repaying the debt that other people have created in your life, emotional, spiritual, relational, financial, physical, whatever. The only person is Jesus Christ. So you can take the long road to get to him by trying to force the people who have wronged and hurt you to pay back something that they don't have the finances or the resources to repay, or you can go the shortcut route and go straight to him and say, Jesus, yet again, this person has created immense debt in my life. They've got me questioning my identity. They've got me broken down. They've got me anxious. They've got me unbalanced, disoriented, unsure of myself, scared to death to be in another relationship, and they can't give me all that back. Will you please? The simplest prayer that we ever pray is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. Mercy is when a person gives you something good that you, haven't, you don't deserve. Mercy is when a person meets you in your weakness, meets you in a position of saying, I'm forfeit, I surrender, I have nothing, I don't have options, there's nowhere else I can go. Mercy says, okay, okay, then I'll, I'll, t I'll fix it. We'll make it like it never happened. I'll heal you. I'll put you back together with more pieces than you started with. That's what Jesus will do for you, but it's hard. If you will begin to grant forgiveness, even in small amounts, slowly and over a long time, what you will eventually experience is that you will also feel forgiving. But that's the order it always goes in. Unless it's your sweet little child that you love that looks just like you and has your DNA in their blood, even then you're going to be pretty mad sometimes, okay? But that's probably the only situation where you're going to feel forgiving at around the same time that you choose to forgive. 99% of the time you will make a choice to say, I am committed to forgiveness in this relationship before you feel anything like forgiving or anything like open or anything like loving. This is why this is a discipline. We've been failing at forgiveness because we want to feel forgiving. And we don't. And newsflash, you mostly won't in your life. That should free you up. Let that burden off your shoulders. Don't beat yourself up anymore because you don't feel Christian enough inside. Forgiveness is a discipline. It's a series of choices that you have been empowered by the Spirit of God to make. You can make those choices. You can learn to make those choices. You can begin thinking about making those choices. You can prepare yourself for when, once again, another broken human being puts you in a position where you have to forgive. 
Nobody wants to forgive. Nobody wants to have to forgive. But it is a reality of human life. Through the power of Jesus Christ, you can, and you can become whole again, and you can get back to the place that you were, that you were at, and even better than that, when that person hurt you, when they stole from you, when they took from you, when they damaged you. So I want to finish with a definition of forgiveness. In light of those four steps, what is forgiveness? And I hope you'll chew on this this week. And like I said, next week we're going to hone in on God being central to all of this working, to any of it making sense. Here's your definition. Forgiveness is self-absorption of a relational debt. If it's less than that, it's not forgiveness. It is self-absorption of a relational debt that seeks reconciliation. Why? Based on the mutual human need. You and the person who were both, you who, who was wronged and you who did the wrong, both need forgiveness. How do I know that? Because you're human. And what kind of forgiveness do you need? The kind that Jesus says is not worth counting. 490, 77, 49, 7, 3, all of them are the wrong number. Jesus says, you do it until it's not necessary anymore, which probably means the rest of your life. So my prayer for you, my friends, is that you will seriously consider whether or not you are willing to go with Jesus, not alone, but to follow him into self-absorption of relational debts, into a place that wants reconciliation, that actually can eventually genuinely seek the good of a person who has been your enemy based on the fact that you and them both need this kind of unlimited forgiveness. The door is open to you into a new kind of life. It's up to you whether you want to walk through or not. Let me pray that for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you demonstrate to us and show us and teach us in such vivid language what is so hard to embrace. My prayer, as it is many weeks, God, is as we've gotten very serious about your word and what it demands from us, that you would protect us from self-condemnation and that you would guard us from condemning each other. This is not a sermon designed to equip us to judge whether the people in our lives are forgiving or not. This is a sermon designed to call us up and in to something that is uniquely unhuman, supernatural in nature, that you are inviting us to participate in something that prior to your death on the cross, only you, God, could ever do. But now because of your life and your death and your resurrection, this new kingdom of God has broken into our world and offers us a new way to be human, to live as if what you say is true is true. Give us that faith. God, teach us to live as if we can keep forgiving and let us as best we can, trust you and lean heavy and hard on you to sustain us as we work through the hard parts of that process. We love you, Father. I thank you for these men and women and for this church and for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond in worship.